Hello and welcome to Tully's Take on History. My name is Dr. Stuart Tully. I'm a professor at history at Nickel State University in Thibodeau. And on this show, I talk to you a little bit about history, kind of give some of the backside, some of the more inside stories you may not know about. Today, I'm going to be talking about President Woodrow Wilson, specifically his last year in office, which is something that's not too well known by most Americans. But first, I have to give a little bit of background. So to understand Wilson, you have to understand the election of 1912, which is where Wilson got elected. This election was just completely off the rails, crazy, totally unprecedented. Uh, the Republican incumbent was William Howard Taft, who was a nice enough guy who did way more than just get stuck in a bathtub. That's probably the one thing most Americans know about him. He's our fattest president, but uh, there's a lot more going on to Taft than that. Taft indeed was a brilliant legal mind, but he had no charisma whatsoever. In fact, he never really liked being president. It's pretty obvious he did not care to be president. He never wanted to become president. Um, he really desired to be the on the Supreme Court. And fun fact, he actually did ultimately become Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. He enjoyed the mess out of it. He lost well of 100 pounds once he got out of the Supreme Court. Um, he inducted a couple presidents in. Uh, most notably, there's a great picture of him and Herbert Hoover at Herbert Hoover's inauguration. So I bet you're wondering, if Taft lacks charisma and doesn't really want to be president, how on earth does he get elected? Well, that has to do with uh, Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, William Howard Taft had been the Secretary of War for Teddy Roosevelt. Secretary of War is now Secretary of Defense. Uh, we don't like to use the word Secretary of War now in the United States. But Teddy Roosevelt was charisma personified. And so what we have here with William Howard Taft is a legacy candidate. By voting for Taft, voters could show that they were actually voting for the fond memories of Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, this is not uncommon in America politics. Uh, two obvious examples are George H.W. Bush, kind of being a legacy candidate for Ronald Reagan, and uh, Martin Van Buren was a legacy candidate for Andrew Jackson. But the problem with this is although Teddy Roosevelt did not run in 1908, he did run in 1912. After one term of sitting off, Teddy Roosevelt decided he would run again, but not as a Republican, but on the new party called the Progressive Party, uh, which become known as the Bull Moose Party after a nickname for Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, after he survived an assassination attempt, actually he was giving a speech, somebody shot him in the chest. He finished the speech. It took him about an hour to finish the speech. And afterwards he said, quote, it takes a lot more than one shot to kill a bull moose. And this really kind of got ingrained to Roosevelt's character. Um, I've actually seen the shirt that he was wearing whenever he got shot. If, uh, if you ever have the chance to go to Medora, North Dakota, it's right on the, uh, the border with uh, Montana. There's Teddy Roosevelt National Park and the Badlands. And you can see the shirt. The shirt's there. Now, the Progressive Party kind of embodied the progressive movement, which is a much longer story for a much larger time. But it kind of represents the new America, which is coming about in this time period. An America that's more, more inclined to modernity. Uh, they really like the rule of experts. They like uh, new education. They're very big in cities. They see the new order that's coming about in the United States, all this new modernity, you know, new machines, factories, consumer products. And they think they can change the world for the better. Now that's progressives, and progressivism kind of gets involved in both polit major political parties. The Republican Party starts embracing some progressives. Uh, you have several 
progressive presidents. I mean, um, FDR, sorry, Teddy Roosevelt was considered a progressive president, as was uh, Taft. They are both progressive Republicans. And, and also some Democrats are tending to be progressive. Now, granted, to be fair, most Southern Democrats aren't keen on progressives, but you do have a growing urban population in the South. But the Progressive Party, the one that is running in 1912, is kind of the misfit toys. It's kind of the people who don't fit into otherwise polite Republican society. Uh, they tend to be against big business. They want all sorts of social welfare programs, social reforms. Uh, they're more outspoken for women's suffrage. Uh, there's a big women's fervor going on. In fact, the campaign song for the Progressive Party in 1912 was Onward Christian Soldiers. And there's a lot of apocalyptic imagery going on uh, with this election. The idea being, you know, a vote for the Republican, sorry, the Progressive Party is a vote to stave off an apocalypse. Now, I don't have the time to get into it, but maybe I'll do a later Tully's Take on History just about the prevalence of eschatology in U.S. development because pretty much at any given point in U.S. history, there's a sizable percentage of the population that thinks the world's about to end in, like, Book of Revelation terms. Now, the Republican Party really has no chance in this election because the rank-and-file members, your, you know, your ordinary Republicans, they are staying with Taft. He's, the, he's a mainstay. It's the GOP, the great old party. You know, they stand for just kind of, you know, keeping things the way they are. But most average voters with even slightly Republican-mindedness go for the new progressive party. So in this election, the uh, Republican Party finishes in third place. Um... Taft barely campaigns. He, he, you can tell he's not too comfortable with all this. Um, also, I should mention there are four major candidates in this election. Uh, there's the Republicans, the Democrats, the Progressive Party, and also the Socialist Party. Uh, Eugene Debs runs for president. He's actually running from prison, and believe it or not, he gets a pretty sizable position of the sizable percentage, I should say, of the popular vote. He does not get any electoral college votes. Um, there aren't, there's a decent number of third parties in U.S. history that get electoral college votes. I think most recently you have something like the, um, segregation Dixiecrat party back when, um, Wallace runs, but, uh, even the reform party, which gets about 20% of the popular vote in the 1992 election gets no electoral college votes. Uh, Debs is not enough to swing the election by any means, but he is enough to warrant inclusion. Now, in response to a split electorate on the electoral uh, on the uh, Republican side, uh, Democrats think they have an easy road to the White House. And here's the thing: like since Reconstruction, there really hadn't been too many Democrat presidents. Yes, there had been Grover Cleveland, but he was a bit of an aberration. He was a Northern Democrat. He was. Uh, Kind of a progressive figure. Maybe one of these days I'll do a Tully's take on history about his own sex scandals. But, oh man, his marriage too. That is, his marriage is weird, man. Um, he's the only president to get married in the White House, but he kind of married his ward. Like, almost like an adoptive daughter who, like, turned 18. And then, like, he's like, oh, I'm in love with you now. And they get married. But that's, that's a story for another time. That's Grover Cleveland. But the Democrats think they actually have a chance. Uh, like I said, there had not been too many Democratic presidents uh, since Reconstruction. Uh, Southern Democrats are still viewed as kind of, eh, they're fighting the Civil War too much. They're not keen on civil rights. So they don't have that much um, national political authority. They do have a lot of authority in the state houses and also in Congress. 
mainly because they're very long-tenured um, elected officials. So it looks like the Democrats are going to elect Champ Clark. He is the Speaker of the House. He's going to be the nominee. Um, at this time period, you don't have the primary system like you have it now. I mean, you do have primaries, but it's pretty much the old proverbial smoke-filled room. Um, you could go to a political convention, and they would not know who the candidate was going to be. They, they do the smoke-filled room. They have several ballots. It could go on for days about not knowing who the candidate is. And this actually happens in 1912. For a number of reasons that happen, mainly on the 46th ballot, uh, William Jennings Bryan, who's definitely going to get to tell his take on history because he is a fascinating figure. He is the Forrest Gump of like late Reconstruction to 1920s uh, American politics because he is everywhere. Uh, they go with an unknown, a man by the name of Woodrow Wilson. That's kind of the compromised candidate. Now, Woodrow Wilson, he had previously been governor of New Jersey and also president of Princeton University. He's our only president to have a PhD. He has a PhD in political science. He's considered to be a little bit of an egghead. Uh, he does not have any foreign policy experience whatsoever. He is a progressive, which is unique for the Democrats in that time period. Most progressives tend to align more with the Republicans. However, he is a northern progressive, except he's considered to be from the South. The South is makes up the Democratic Party in this time period, but not on the national level. However, Wilson is originally from the South. He is originally from the kind of border area between Georgia and South Carolina. His father was a minister, also a slave owner during the Civil War. Uh, Wilson was a small child during the Civil War. He was barely born during the Civil War, but he remembered Reconstruction. In fact, uh, there's this anecdote he tells about meeting Robert E. Lee as a child. This would be after the war. This is after that war, that time period when Lee is not a general, you know, the Confederacy is over and Lee's still alive. Wilson describes meeting him, and Wilson's a small child, probably seven or eight years old in this time period, and he describes meeting Lee as almost like meeting a god or a deity or something. It's like he, he lionizes Lee, which is not unusual in this time period. You have to remember in the 1890s to about 1920s, that's when most of the Confederate monuments get started and erected around the South. Um, lost cause mentality comes out, um... The Klan is back, I should say. The Klan is about to come back in 1915, 1914 with the rise of Birth of a Nation. Um, yeah, so there's kind of this, this, I don't want to say renaissance, but this kind of reassertion of the Confederacy is a good and proper thing. And Wilson is never a member of this new KKK, which does come about during his presidency, but he is sympathetic. Uh, we've only had one member of the Klan become president, and that would be Harry Truman, who, eh, shoot, I'll probably have to do a totally take on history on him too. Uh, Truman was a member of the Klan for a very short time in the 20s. He claimed he never paid dues. He said he only went to one meeting and then asked to leave after about a week. Uh, the Klan of the 20s, it's its own independent, in, uh, not independent, but it's its own animal. It's not like the Klan of Reconstruction. Um, I'll probably have to do a totally take on history about that. But when we talk about the Klan in the 20s, they're, they're really trying to put on this facade of being pro-America. In fact, um, Wilson, a primo anecdote about Wilson is uh, he does screen the movie Birth of the Nation in the White House. Birth of a Nation, eh, once again, probably something I'll have to tell you to take on history on. It's a very important film. It's a three-hour movie when most films are like 10 minutes, you know, man washing a horse. But it's the first real epic movie 
tells the story of the Civil War and Reconstruction, and in this movie, the Klan are undoubtedly the heroes. They show the Ku Klux Klan and other white organizations saving the South. And he, when he screens this movie, he claimed that it was, quote, history writ with lightning. Basically endorsing its accuracy. Remember, he's a, he's a PhD. I mean, his, his, he doesn't have a degree in history, but it's in political science. And he even wrote a book about Reconstruction kind of affirming that the Klan and whiteness saved the South from being overrun by black folks. Anyway, back on point, uh, the election 1912 is crazy. It ends up Wilson, Wilson winning fairly easily, but he doesn't have a mandate. Remember, the uh, vote was split four to three ways, and he has no mandate. He, he gets the electoral college votes. He does not get a majority of the population. He has no mandate. He's the first, quote-unquote, southern president since, like, maybe Andrew Johnson, and the last until Lyndon B. Johnson, who's going to be, like, in 50 years. Uh, he tries to do some domestic policy changes, nothing too major, you know, kind of progressivism. The country kind of liked uh, presidents who claim to do stuff, but not get that much done. He's nowhere near as pro proactive as somebody like um, F uh, Theodore Roosevelt or um, Taftar. And his foreign policy is actually pretty low-key. Aside from doing some stuff um, in the Latin America, he appoints William Jennings Bryan as a Secretary of State, and they get more involved with interventionist stuff. Uh, he does chase Pancho Villa around uh, Mexico for a while. Well, he doesn't personally. Uh, he sends Pershing over to deal with Pancho Villa in 1914. Uh, so it's pretty low-key. Also in 1914, um, his wife Ellen dies of kidney failure. This is going to become important in a little bit. Uh, Wilson is depressed, but he finds a new relationship fairly quickly in 1915 when he marries Edith Boiling. It's going to become important, but he gets married in the White House, so... I know I did get, I'm sorry, he didn't get married in the White House. He got married while he was president. We've only had one president get married actually in the White House, and that would be Cleveland. But uh, Wilson does get married while he is president, but it's a pretty low-key ceremony. It's, it's not as big as Cleveland's. Cleveland's was like the social event of the year. By the way, you might be wondering, hey, doesn't something else happen in 1914? It sure does. The Great War, World War One. It breaks out in Europe for a number of reasons. Uh, the most immediate being an archduke who's heir to the throne of the Austria-Hungarian Empire. Well, the presumed heir to the throne, Franz Ferdinand, is assassinated. But there's actually way more going on here in terms of secret alliances. Uh, Bismarck, whenever he set up Germany, uh, set up a lot of alliances to screw over France. And pretty much uh, without Bismarck there, because the new archduke, not the new Archduke, sorry, the new Kaiser of Germany, uh, Kaiser Wilhelm I, he pretty much is, sorry, Wilhelm II, good gosh, I'm tired, Wilhelm I was his grandfather, Wilhelm II dismisses Bismarck, and Bismarck was pretty much the only thing keeping European diplomacy together. Also, this is in the time of imperialism, and Europeans seem kind of bored with fighting tribal people, because those conflicts were seen as too easy. And there's this big fear, not just in Europe, but across the you know United States and other Western powers, that uh, boys are getting too soft. You know, without terrifying death or something to toughen them up, uh, they're getting too soft. It's too easy. We're they're losing out on their masculinity. America also has this going on too. I mean, you know, with with the end of the Indian Wars and things, there's and especially the end of the Western Frontier, which once again there'll be another telling take on history. There is fear that. Um, the population is getting too soft. Yet in spite of this, America is happy to sit this war out. Um, they see what's going on with the Great War. 
Yeah, there are some sympathies among some various Im immigrant groups. Uh, Germans make up the largest immigrant population of the United States, and they have a natural sympathy towards Germany. Irish make up the second biggest immigrant group. They have a natural um, inclination to screw over England and any charge. But by and large, the U.S. was committed to isolationism. Most Americans see the destruction of the war. They see it's not going to be a quick war. They hear about trench warfare. And pretty much the main thought is, thank God it's not us. And honestly, and Wilson is definitely part of this too. Wilson is proud to be an isolationist. And honestly, that's the way it would have stayed had it not been for a couple factors. The first is that uh, some U.S. companies thought that selling supplies to the countries at war might be a good way to make some money. You know, maybe not bullets, but, uh, you know, food, medical supplies, things like that. And then U.S. banks felt that lending money to countries at war might be a good way to make sure countries at war would buy supplies from U.S. companies. And then the countries at war got mad at U.S. companies for selling supplies to the other countries at war. Then the Germans started using submarines, also known as U-boats, to sink the ships carrying supplies that countries bought from U.S. companies using money borrowed from U.S. banks. Then Americans got mad that Germany sank ships where the passengers didn't know that they were riding alongside military supplies brought from the U.S. from companies to be sent from countries at war. Then also, Germany supposedly told Mexico to invade Texas to make sure U.S. stayed out of a war that they already staying out of, but only England had a copy of the supposed letter between Germany and Mexico. Yeah, let me tell you, I'm going to stop right now. It's a total cluster fudge. But in the midst of this, isolationism is the primary stance of the vast majority of Americans. By the time of the election of 1916, Wilson utilizes isolation as his main campaign slogan, quote, he kept us out of the war. The insinuation was that a, a president of lesser character would have fallen victim to his baser instincts and gotten involved in the Great War. Uh, for instance, after the sinking of the Lusitania, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, who's now a private citizen, criticizes Wilson immensely, calls him a jackass, uh, which has a lot more weight back then, for not responding to the Germans with action. Still, most Americans do not support this war, and they're more than happy to have Wilson keeping them out. But for a host of reasons, um, the, the two main ones being, first of all, the U.S. loaned a lot of money to the Allies, and number two being the Russian Revolution, where Russia pulls out of the war, and it now looks like Germany might be able to overwhelm the previously deadlocked Western Front. The U.S. enters into the war in April of 1917, just a few months after Wilson was reelected under this whole promise of staying out of the war. But Wilson tries to, you know, pivot this by justifying the U.S.'s entry by framing the war on progressive grounds. He stated by fighting, the U.S. would be engaging in a war to end all wars and that winning would make, quote, the world safe for democracy. Uh, this is demonstrated by linking moral causes to the war, stating that soldiers have to, quote, live straight to shoot straight. And there's this manifestation by pushing for a lot of moral changes. Uh, the first one is a push for national prohibition, which had already gotten a lot of traction um, and it was finally ratified as part of the pre-war hubbub, the idea being, you know, a soldier's drunk, they're not going to be a very good soldier. And also removing red light districts, uh, most notably in New Orleans. Storyville was probably the most famous red light district in the United States. And yet the Navy bulldozes it. Um, they, they say basically, we don't want sailors uh, getting venereal diseases and things like that. Uh, if you didn't know, pretty much every city in the United States before this time had a uh, brothel or a red light district of some, site, uh, some sort, and the idea being just keep it in limits, 
However, progressivisms like the saloon, they saw it as a blight on society, and they, by and large, got rid of it. Like the election of 1912, progressives, and remember, Democrats are progressives too, it's kind of free of party, they view the war in religious terms and felt that it was justified as part of a larger crusade against sin in general. So America enters into the war, and the fresh troops really break the stalemate. An armistice is called in late 1918. In fact, uh, November 11th, we're coming up on that. That's going to be uh, Memorial Day. No, Veterans Day. Yeah, it's Veterans Day, isn't it? Yeah, it's Veterans Day. It's Veterans Day. Sorry, Memorial Day is in May. Armistice Day was called for the longest time. So the armistice aside, it's a ceasefire, and all sides are going to meet together in Paris because that's where you that's where you uh, negotiate treaties. That's where you do all your peace negotiations in Paris. It's a pretty place. And they're meeting to determine the terms to end the war. And Wilson actually does something unexpected because he decides, you know what, I'm going to go over myself. I'm not going to send negotiators. I'm not going to send over diplomats. I'm going to go over as the sitting president of the United States to Paris. This is something that really hadn't been done before. He's got this crazy plan to like justify that you know World War One. It has to mean something. And it's going to mean something by preventing all future wars. And it can fulfill all these crazy progressive promises. Uh, remember, he is a idealist. He is an egghead. And they actually kind of really do believe in this sort of idealism. The idea being, you know, several million people died. You know, France and Germany are devastated. For what? I mean, no major land changes. But he's like, you know what? If we can make it so that there's never a future war like this scale, it'll be worth it. He has this plan, it's ambitious, called the 14 points. I'm not going to go through all 14 points individually. Um, I'm just going to give you some broad overview of them. Pretty much, uh, no more secret alliances. He thought the secret alliance system is uh, not a good thing. Um, free trade, number two, would be allowed throughout the world. The idea being if countries are trading with each other and both making money off of each other, they're less inclined to invade each other for resources or just invade each other in general. And third, and most ambitious, he wants to design an international forum that allow countries to air out their grievances without going to war. The idea being, you know, whenever the assassination of Franz Ferdinand happened, you know, Austria-Hungary and Serbia, which, granted, Serbia's not its own country in this time period, but they could have gone in front of this international body, talked it out, and they wouldn't have had to go to war. Nobody would have to die. He's also pretty insistent that no country take the blame for the war. And there really shouldn't be an expectation for reparations. You know, there, there's this idea that Germany needs to pay. It's Germany's fault. And Germany's like, I thought our archduke died or something. I, 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 it's not Germany. Uh, also, I'll probably have to do a tell you to take on history about Germany, because Germany itself is a very young country. Uh, also, Wilson believed that uh, assigning sanctions or giving territory would ultimately result in another war, which nobody really wants. Is this incredibly idealistic? Yeah. But he's an egghead. Remember, he's a PhD. He thinks he knows better than everybody else. So these 14 points land with a total thud at Versailles. Uh, Versailles is the old French chateau, fancy castle, which is where they're doing the negotiation. Uh, Germany likes this idea. Germany likes the idea of uh, not be getting the blame and also, you know, not having to give away reparations. But it's the only European country who likes the 14 points and all. Uh, France hates this. Uh, France and England, but particularly France, because remember, most of the war was fought in France. France lost a lot of people. Uh, they were devastated. You know, the landscape would take forever to repair. And they're like, yo, we won this war. We deserve stuff. We want reparations. We want territory. Give us the Rhineland. We want billions upon billions of dollars from Germany to pay for this all. 
But weirdly enough, everybody is okay with the 14th point. They want the League of Nations. They think the League of Nations might be a very good idea, but they don't want the other 13 points. Now, Wilson's insistent that the League of Nations doesn't work unless all countries are equal. And if some countries are paying reparations to others, they're really not equal and this whole League of Nations thing would fall apart. Still, he wants to savage, uh, salvage his grand, you know, chaotic progressive dream. So he begrudgingly allows for the League of Nations to be formed, minus all of its real power, minus the other 13 points. The problem is, and some of y'all might be already ahead of me on this one, um, the president by himself has no power to make treaties and stuff. They have to be ratified by Congress. And Congress is really pissed. <laughs> Uh, the Congress at this time is Republican-controlled, and Republicans sweep into office during the midterms, basically saying, yo, we're isolationist. And they really regret that American lives, not a lot of lives, but any American lives, were shed for this European war, which America is, like, not getting anything out of. And these Republicans believe that if the country is involved in the League of Nations, it's only going to be a matter of time before they're dragged into even more wars. Like, every single European squabble would mean America has to get involved, and they're not having none of that. Plus, the general public's not too happy with Wilson because he promised, hey, I promised to stay out of the war. Whoopsie, now we're in the war. So needless to say, Congress votes down American inclusion into the league. And Wilson is humiliated. Remember, this is his grand idea. And then now, eh, they're not a part of it. But Wilson has this idea. He plans to take his case directly to the American people. He believes that he gets, if he gets enough everyday Americans to understand the value of the league, they're going to pester their congressmen into ratifying American inclusion. Uh, here's the thing. Like, that might work, except Wilson's not a very good public speaker. He's got no charisma. He's not very eloquent. I mean, he's, he, he knows a lot of big words, but he's not, like, a great speaker. But he earnestly believes if he gets in front of enough people, he could get them to change their mind. And everybody really, really advises him against doing this. But he goes for it anyway. He goes on this barnstorming session across the country, giving speeches several times a day, riding trains, pretty much telling any American who would listen, yo, he wants to do this. And it should really come as no surprise that in September of 1919, he collapsed of exhaustion in Colorado after several weeks of barnstorming. Like, he's just too exhausted, he collapses. And matters are made worse because... About a week or so after that collapse, he has a stroke. It's a very big stroke, and he's in a semi-vegetative state for quite a while. He's virtually blind, he's unable to move his left side, he can't really talk, and this is kept completely top secret. Like, nobody knows about this. Pretty much only Wilson's new wife and his doctor know just how sick he was. Uh, the general public has no idea about this, particularly <coughs> they want to make sure Europe knows nothing about this. Because it's going to undermine, like, everything. All the uh, host of issues about the end of the war. They're kind of, you know, up in the air if Wilson is bedridden or just not around. So while Wilson is bedridden, his new wife, Edith, acts pretty much like the president. Like, you, it can be argued that Edith Wilson was our first female president. Because she forges his signature for important documents... Uh, deciding which issues of state were enough to warrant his attention, even though he really couldn't communicate and wasn't really sure like how much he was catching on to. And even though she denied it, she said later on in life that she just did like you know clerical stuff for him, forging his name and stuff. There's evidence that she actually did make some executive decisions. 
Now, Wilson eventually somewhat recovered from the stroke. His mobility was always limited. His never his vision never fully came back. He was able to speak a little bit more, but for the rest of his term, Edith pretty much performed most of his duties. Uh, once word of Wilson's incapacity came out, there were plans made to enact a series of protocols for what to do if a president was incapacitated but not dead. Uh, this would ultimately become the 25th Amendment, which actually wasn't fully ratified until after uh, Kennedy died in the 60s. But it's mainly done because of the legacy of Wilson's illness. The idea being, if the president is alive but incapacitated, who acts as president? Um, it actually was enacted once, ironically, not ironically, but interestingly enough, in George W. Bush's campaign, not during his campaign, during his presidency, uh, whenever he went under for a dental procedure for about an hour, and basically for that hour that he was under you know, the anesthesia, uh, Dick Cheney was acting as president. Um, pretty much the idea being if like, you know, America got attacked or we have to nuke somebody real quick, uh, Dick Cheney could pull the button. He didn't. Uh, nothing really happened to it. Now, Wilson ultimately considered that his 14 points would lead to another war in Europe. And he didn't live long enough to see just how right he was, but yeah. Uh, pretty much the for, what did happen at Versailles was that Germany was given tons of reparations but also limited in their military, but also ability to have an economy. The idea being that France wanted to leave uh, Germany as weak as humanly possible. Now, this would ultimately result in the rise of a little dude named Hitler, who maybe I'll talk about some other time. All right, thank you so much for listening to Tully's Take on History. My name is Stuart Tully. Have a good one.